Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters podcast covering Pope Francis's summit on the future of the Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the reporter's news editor and former Vatican correspondent. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the reporter's current Vatican correspondent. We're recording this episode on October 29th, just hours after the conclusion of Pope Francis's four-week Synod of Bishops, which discussed big issues, such as women's ministry in the Church and LGBTQ Catholics. Later in this show, we'll be interviewing two guests. Joining us first will be Jesuit Father Agbon Kian Mege Arobator, a theologian and one of the Synod's ten non-bishop members from the African continent. Later, we will welcome Dr. Helena Yepesen, a Swiss Catholic who was part of the first group of women to ever vote at the Synod and spoke to us earlier in the week before things wrapped up. Before we get to our interviews, let's talk a bit about what just happened. Chris, last night was the big show. The Synod Assembly voted on and then released its final document. Do you want to talk a bit about how that process went and what was and what wasn't in the text? Sure. It's a lot to digest, and I think we're all still digesting it. But essentially, last evening on Saturday, the delegates voted on a document that was about 40 pages that was meant to outline areas of convergence, areas of, to consider further, and then further proposals that had been discussed throughout the course of the month. And the whole gist of the document is how the church might become more synodal and how its structures might become more inclusive and welcoming. But I, I think most readers of NCR Online and most listeners to this podcast well, no, there were high hopes for a lot of Catholics about what, how the document might address the role of women's ministries and also LGBTQ Catholics. And I think what we saw in the document was a, a rather cautious and, and careful approach to these issues that kind of w- was almost an, an about face from some of the earlier documents released in the Synod process. On the question of women, we saw some really strong language being introduced, talking about how the church has been a church that wounds and the issue of chauvinism in the church and the urgent need for the inclusion of women in, in ministries. At the same time, when it got to brass tacks, it was also a bit, I think, thin in its, its proposals and much more theoretical on the issue of women deacons. The writing committee and the, the Senate effectively punted on the question, saying that you know there, there are those in the room that felt the possibility of women deacons was a would rupture the church's tradition, and there were others that said, "No, this is a way of inviting new life and new ministry in the modern world uh, by recovering the long and ancient practice of ordaining deacons and, and women as deacons in the church." And so, the, the only real concrete recommendation to be considered on that front is uh, a request that the theological work that had been done by two past papal commissions, as well as other bodies in the church, that it be presented at the next assembly of this synod in October 2024. I didn't mention anything about the possibility of the ordination of women to the priesthood, even though we know that had been discussed in the room. And then when it comes to LGBTQ Catholics, we again, we've reported throughout the month there had been emotional and intense debate on these very questions. And that was very much absent in the draft. They did not use the acronym LGBTQ. There was a sense of glossing over of this, probably to reach some consensus. But I think many members were were really frustrated that they, the draft document didn't even acknowledge the fact that there had been tensions over this issue. Yeah, I think listeners will, be, will know we have been following this closely. 
And uh, today in, the, in this episode, we'll have the, the, the fruits of dialogue with Father Robotor and Dr. Yepison about some of the discussions in the room and how things came to this point. I think we should also point out that it is a 40-page document. There is a lot of interesting detail and interesting points that we can't cover fully in this episode. The document covers a wide range of topics about the ministry and life of the Catholic Church. There's particularly some interesting tidbits in terms of how the Church works with other Christian denominations. For example, there's a call in the document for all the Christian traditions to find a common date for Easter. There's also quite an interesting discussion about the role of Eastern Rite Catholic churches and a call for their patriarchs and their the leaders of those churches to be, have more of an advisory role to the Pope. Last night, what we saw was uh, voting that went late into the evening on the Saturday evening here in Rome. We were told initially that the Pope might speak at about 7.20 p.m. in Rome. That didn't happen until about 9 p.m. in Rome. It was an indication that the thing had gone on a bit longer than intended. The members were voting paragraph by paragraph via their electronic tablet system. And we were given vote tallies that will be made public in terms of which paragraphs in the document were the ones that received the most no votes. Uh, At quick review, it was uh, two paragraphs dealing with the question of ordaining women as deacons that received the most no votes, and another paragraph about uh, the a very gentle discussion of the role of clerical celibacy and whether that could be reconsidered also received a significant number of no votes. Kind of interesting that it was very clear, even from the vote tallies, that those were the topics that were most at discussion and and most perhaps difficult for the assembly to find consensus on. Yeah, and the fact that LGBTQ issues weren't even included in the document, I think, is a real sign that they probably couldn't reach consensus. And I think there was perhaps a fear that would get struck down and perhaps a real desire of the organizers to reach for every paragraph to be approved. I think they wanted to come out of this almost presenting a united front, which to me, it's a bit of a head scratcher because if part of the month was to outline areas of convergence and also identify areas of divergence, the need to reach consensus in the final document doesn't, to me, necessarily add up with what we had seen up until this point in the Synod discussions. It was interesting, too. There was a press briefing last night, Saturday evening, after the document had been voted on, and there, there seemed to be an attempt by the synod organizers to frame what had happened, especially in, in the discussion on women's issues. Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerick, who was one of the synod's main organizers, said he was full of wonder that so many people had voted in favor of the paragraphs about women's leadership in the church. He said he thought that means that the resistance is not so great as people have thought. Also interesting is that at least one of the delegates, uh, one of the members in the Synod, Jesuit Father James Martin, uh, spoke to me and Chris uh, for our our initial article to express disappointment on the realm of LGBTQ Catholics, and particularly to say that he was disappointed that at least some of the discussion, some of the tension that had come up in the room was not put into the document. Yeah, I think what we're going to see as folks absorb this document, which, by the way, is still not officially out in, in, in English which prevents a lot of Catholics the opportunity from reading it and processing it. So I think we'll continue to see folks identifying areas where they had higher hopes or perhaps areas where they're finding encouragement, but it really lays the groundwork for a heavy lift in the year ahead. Yeah. I think I'll make a brief advertisement here that Chris and I also spoke today. We're just coming from a a joint interview with Cardinals Blaise Supich and Robert McElroy where they also were reflecting on the final document, offering their insights. 
on kind of the path it leads forward and what might happen in this 11 months between the Synod Assembly here now and next year in October 2024. You might, you're going to want to look for that interview with some very interesting insights at ncronline.org. In the meantime, this seems like a good place to take a break. And after the music, we'll be back with our first interview with Father Arugator. We're joined on the Vatican Briefing today by Jesuit Father Agbon Kian Mege Arobator, who is currently the Dean of the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University. Father Arobator, a renowned speaker and theologian originally from Nigeria, was previously president of the Jesuit Conference of Africa and Madagascar. In that role, he oversaw the six provinces and one region of the Global Jesuit Order on the African continent. Before taking the Jesuit Conference role, Father Arobator was president of Hakima University College, a Jesuit school of theology in Nairobi, Kenya. He is the author of a number of popular books, including Theology Brewed in an African Pot and The Pope and the Pandemic, Lessons in Leadership in a Time of Crisis. Father Robotor took part in the Synod as one of 10 non-bishop members from the African continent. Father Robotor, thank you so much for joining us here on the Vatican Briefing. Thanks for having me. I wonder if maybe we can ask first, just for your overall assessment of the final document from the Synod that was released yesterday evening, was there, I know it's, I know it's a long text and you've had a lot of time to review and consider different issues, was there anything that, looking back, particularly resonates with you? Thank you. But looking back on the Synod and the final document, the one thing that strikes me is that this is the work of the Synod as a diverse grouping of lay women, men, religious women and men, and bishops coming together to address issues of, of importance in the church. So I, I believe and I feel very strongly that this document is representative of the collective conversations, do not in its entirety, but certainly uh, substantially, of the Synod. We were struck by the fact that the text didn't seem to fully acknowledge the tensions over LGBTQ people in the church, uh, perhaps a, a broader discussion of that. Um, was that something that, based on your experience in the room, you thought that the text might have more to say on, or what was your understanding of, of how that developed in terms of getting from the discussion in the room to the final document? Well, I think that the process that particular conversation followed reflects certainly the tension, not just within the room, but also within the, the global Catholic community and, and society as well. I think when you have a conversation like this that brings together people from different parts of the church, you realize that the understanding the perspectives and the knowledge of these controversial issues are not aligned. We don't all share the same understanding. And so that certainly generates tension, generates a disagreement, and generates very strong divergences. I think that's what you see in the fact that this particular conversation is not explicitly referenced in the final document. 
I think by its absence, you can infer that this has been a matter that was robustly discussed and a matter that creates a lot of divergent and differing positions and perspectives and opinions. Just to follow up on that, if I may, I think it's just been less than 24 hours since the document was passed, but some church reform groups, such as New Ways Ministries and others, have expressed some disappointment, but also they're looking for hope. And because that it's not in the document, is it fair to say that there, there will be a space for that to continue to be discussed in the year ahead and next year's Senate as well? I think the important thing to keep in mind, and this is very important certainly for me, is that we are not talking about a definitive text. We're not talking about a final document. We are talking about basically an attempt to invite further conversation. In any case, in 2024, whatever document comes out or text is issued will not also be a definitive text because of the nature of this particular process. It is a consultative process. And keeping that in mind, I am reassured that going forward, in preparation for the second session, the space is there to continue to have this conversation because nothing is closed. And definitely when you look at the preparatory phases and the preparatory documents prior to this synod, it's clear that there is no issue that is off the table. And therefore, even now, because this document is not a final document, it says by that that no issue is finalized or closed. We want to talk more broadly about the document, but before we do, we also want to talk about another specific issue, and that's particularly how the document speaks about women in the church and women's leadership in the church. I was struck by some of the language it uses that's quite moving. I think it says women speaking about a, a church that wounds and a church that where there might be chauvinism or masculinity that wounds. But at the same time, the document also postpones action on the question of women's ordination to the diaconate and asks kind of unclearly for more study on the issue. I'm wondering how you assess the text considerations of women's leadership and specifically the possibility of women in ordained ministry. One thing I can say from my experience is that I have never been in a space like this where I felt that the voices, the opinions, the perspectives, the positions of women rang out loud and clear, not by a third party, but by women themselves. I can attest to that. And that for me was a point of real consolation. That the process created a space where perhaps for the first time at this level in the church, we heard the voices, the testimonies, the experiences, and the desires and expectations of women articulated by women themselves. And if you look at the document, it says that women do not want to be a question or a problem discussed by others. 
And so on all the issues of women in ministry, that has been my observation, my experience, that the colleagues on the Synod, the women colleagues on the Synod, were very articulate about where they stood on these issues. And it was important that the rest of the Synod heard that. And again, as with other issues that remain open, I believe that what the desires and the expectations are were clearly articulate. And although the document doesn't, because the document doesn't make decisions on these issues, it attempts to pull together all the divergent positions. But I think that going forward again, there is nothing in the document that restricts conversations about this matter. And I look forward to that, having a more robust conversation about these issues and a more articulate expression of what this would look like in real life. I think one of the things I experienced was this desire that we cannot simply continue to use an expression, come on in North America, kick the can down the road. We have to engage with it. I think the moment is now. And that's what I heard. Broadening out a bit, we know that there are still some regulations in place about the individual interventions during the Synod. But when you look back on this last month, what resonates with you? What stands out as maybe highlights or dynamics that you felt surprised you? What comes to mind? What really struck me strongly was the opportunity for people to tell stories, give testimonies, and give an account of the experience. I can confirm that it was not simply a dry, abstract, disincarnate theological debate. Far from it. I heard personal stories of people's engagement presence and ministry in the church where people felt as a community we felt we fell short in all areas and where people expressed hope for what the church can mean and still means that is relevant to people wherever they are. I heard diverse voices it's people who are young looking for a hope-filled future. It's people with disabilities. You know, it's people who feel estranged from the church. We've mentioned the LGBTQ community. That's a story that I heard. It's women who feel that they deserve greater respect and honor and recognition of their dignity not just simply as the document says, people who attend church or who are in the pews, but people who are the very lifeblood of this community called church and therefore deserve access to full ministry, participation in governance and leadership in the church. And these were positions that were expressed not as theological debates, but as real 
life experiences and stories told by people who care deeply about the church. That for me was not what I was expecting when I thought of a synod. But having had the opportunity to do this, I do believe that the process allowed us to just be real people talking about real issues. Can you talk a bit about, you've mentioned several times that this wasn't your expectation of a synod and also the role of women's voices. What was it like to be in this gathering of bishops but that also included 54 women members and other women serving as experts and facilitators? As a priest there, what was it like hearing those voices and how did that affect the dynamic? I would say personally, it was very humbling for me. And as a matter of course, I opted to listen and let the women in my groups, in the different groups that I was in, take the lead in articulating the issues that they considered paramount and of relevance to their presence, to their mission and ministry in the church. I think I would give credit to the organizers of this synod that they allowed, or rather, created a space where there could be interaction amongst people of different stations, status, or situation in the church. You, you could be a patriarch, you could be a cardinal, you could be an archbishop or a bishop, but you had to sit at the same table with the other, be that person a young person, laywoman, a layman, a priest, a religious woman, you had to sit at the same table. And so you could not segregate people based on their status. And speaking of status, one thing that resonated very strongly, and you see this in the document, is that the one important access code, if I may use that word, that qualifies each person to be in that room is our common baptism. That was strongly expressed, and I do not recall anybody challenging that. And I would not see the basis for anybody challenging that theologically. And I think that's important for us to realize that the, the, the stronger, the, the clearer we're able to articulate this fundamental truth, I think the better it will be for the church. You were appointed to the Synod as a member in part to be a, what they called it, a witness to the continental synodal process in Africa. How did you see that part of your role here at the Synod in Rome? And then were there particular concerns that you brought with you here from Africa? And are there, or are there issues that perhaps were neglected by the media that are of importance to the church in Africa. Speaking of that particular status as a witness, I think there is an, a certain element of passivity about the idea of being a witness. And that is certainly quite the contrary of my experience because I was actively participating and engaged with the process and a voting member of that as well. And I served in various capacities in the small groups. But one thing I would say is that, yes, Africa's voice was represented. And I think what 
was particularly striking if you look at sections that deal with socioeconomic situations. I think that's representative of the current challenges that the continent is struggling with, whether it's challenges of conflict and violence and war or migration and displacements of people, the whole challenge of socioeconomic poverty. These were all issues that resonated very strongly in the Senator Hall. And in that sense, not because they are particular to Africa, but because they speak to generally the state, the current state of our world, of which Africa is an integral part. I wonder, as a theologian, looking at this two, now three-year process for the Synod, involving first all these consultations, both at the diocesan level, national level, then continental level, and bringing everything to Rome for these giant synod assemblies here. I wonder, how do you evaluate this kind of consultative process? How do you see it in terms of a development for the global church and and the way it discerns and looks at issues? I would say very clearly as a theologian, this is a revolutionary process. Because when you look at the whole tradition of synod, or even councils, as we've known them over the last 60-plus years. We haven't had a space like this that at least attempted to be representative of the demographic configuration or composition of the Church. The official name for this gathering is Synod of Bishops. I think there we see a tension because it's called a synod of bishops, which presumes that this is exclusively a gathering for people with episcopal authority and dignity. But what Pope Francis has done, which is quite revolutionary, is to maintain this structure as a consultative body, but open it up to wider participation so that the church as a community begins to see that there is a depth of wisdom. There's a variety of gifts, and there are unique qualities that we miss out if we only think of this bodies like this narrowly. Rather, if we open it up, as Pope Francis has done, The church is the better for welcoming the wisdom, the giftedness, and qualities of its members. And so, as a consultative body, I want to believe that this is the way forward. And I say that as a belief, but I also am not under any illusion that this is not a shared position because clearly there are people who believe that this is a dilution of the authoritative status of bishops. I hold a contrary position and I think in that I am more aligned with the vision of Pope Francis. We're sitting here in the Jesuit Curia just a few steps from St. Peter's and where you've spent the last month in a room. 
And there are about 450 of you that were in that room. But starting this week, you're all going to go back to your respective homes. And we've got 11 months until you come back here to Rome for the next session of the Synod. How does this 40-something page document that came out yesterday affect the next year? What can we expect at the local level? And how does it actually grow, develop, mature to affect the process when you come back here next October? I would hope that over the next 11 months, what has been started here will continue to use the imagery of uh, Timothy Ratcliffe to germinate, to be cultivated through active conversations in local communities and active conversations amongst theologians and other experts and bishops in local groupings, regional groupings, continental groupings, facilitating conversations to look again at the issues that have been raised and therefore preparing to engage them even at a more deeper level for the next session of the Synod. So I expect to be very busy, a time for everybody. We do too, as reporters. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of being busy, Father Robotor, we really appreciate you being here. We know it's been a long month here in Rome, and there's been many meetings you've been in at the Synod, so thank you very much, and thank you for joining us here on the Vatican Briefing today. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're joined on the Vatican Briefing today by Helena Yepesen, a religious educator and parish catechist. Yepesen has worked for more than 20 years at the Lenten Fund, the relief organization of Switzerland's Catholic Church. She is currently the program officer for their Philippine program. Yepesen has taken part in the ongoing synodal process at every level, in the consultations for her Diocese of Basel in northwest Switzerland, at the National Assembly, and as a delegate for the Swiss Catholic Church at the European Continental Assembly in Prague in February 2023. Yepesen took part in the October 2023 Rome Assembly as a member and witness to the synodal experience of the European continent. Dr. Yepesen, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. Oh, thanks to you. Some bishops, such as Sydney's Archbishop Anthony Fisher, recently spoke about how the Synod discussed women's ordination, and he's expressed criticism about those discussions. As someone that's been in the room without revealing what others have said, can you give us a sense about the nature of the debate, how the discussions come up, what has been your experience engaging in this discussion on the role of women in the church? Well, it was a very good discussion, very open. There was so much openness from everybody. Many women spoke, but also many cardinals. And it was, well, of course, there were also divergences. but it was a very good and inspiring discussion. And it is actually historic that all the themes regarding the women in the church were 
on the table, while before that wasn't possible in other synods. And the women could really speak. I spoke, several spoke. It was, I liked it very much because it was a very open discussion. Could you talk to us about that? I know one of the novelties of the synod is that women took part as full voting members, about 50 women like yourself as full voting members. How did you find that experience? Did you experience women being able to discuss equally and have the same kind of input as men? Yeah, I'm impressed, actually, that we really treated equally as women. This also the method, how we have to work, respects that everybody really can speak and nobody can speak too long or women are just left out. So everybody speaks and uh, especially minorities are not also forgotten in that group. I'm talking of the group discussions. Yeah, it makes a difference if women are there and can speak. Uh, It really makes a difference. Also, I think some bishops would talk differently with the presence of women in the room. So I feel for many cardinals and bishops, it's just very normal because they have women in their offices, in their countries, at the leadership level of the church already. So for them, it's like more normal. For others, it's still a strange experience we can feel. But I think this will develop. And I am sure that there will be synods uh, like similar as this. And there might be bishop synod with only bishops, but I'm sure there will be in the future this kind of synodal assemblies or synods. You know, we see the roundtables with women at the table with bishops and cardinals. But we were also told that last week that all the women got together at the headquarters of the UISG, which is the umbrella group for all the religious women congregations around the world. Mm -hmm. What was that like for just the women to be around the tables together? Unfortunately, I couldn't join that uh, group because we had an appointment before. And so, but it seems it was a very uh, powerful experience for them. My colleagues told me, and I think that can still be further developed, that maybe women will also meet and just discuss among themselves on certain issues, actually. But these questions are only coming up now during the Synod. But definitely, it's an interesting thing to develop for the period until next year and for the Assembly next year. What was the dynamic like between, I know some of the women appointed as members were laywomen, and some were religious sisters. Mm. Did they bring various perspectives to the room, or was that what was that like? For me, very inspiring. Proportionally, there are actually like too many religious sisters, right, among the this, the group of the women. But the sisters they have a special role now, I think, at this period of the synodal process because they are talking from a different perspective, but still they are talking for all women because many are educators are in health uh, institutions and have important positions. These are all high-level women of the Catholic Church here among the also the religious sisters. And I like their testimonies. I like their contributions very strong because they also come from very difficult political situations like Iraq, Syria, Russia, Ukraine. It's so inspiring to listen to them. Yeah. So so often the, the religious sisters are the ones on the front line, and we yeah. see that time and time again. If we were to back up for a moment, this synod has been going on for two years. We've had local parish-level discussions, national discussions, continental gatherings. 
and you've been in the thick of it at every turn. What was that process like for you? And how have you seen it change? And if you were to suggest changes for future synods, what would you recommend? Well, in Switzerland, at the parish level and also at the diocesan level, it was quite a big effort to mobilize people to participate because many of the older generation have already participated in the Synod 72, 1972. And they said, well, if we could implement what we discussed about in, that was 50 years ago. So I, they, many people don't have the energy anymore to really engage at the level, but we were able to mobilize many still. And it's good, but we also have to show them now that there are open signs, uh, let's say from the universal church, or we have to bring the experience from here back to motivate them to still engage further because the Swiss, the church is also in a big crisis now. And I think we have to show that this process will really be a reform process for the church. And my, for me, like what I see as a sign or like a symbol for the future is when we were here in 2019 for the Amazonia Synod, there was a group of Swiss sisters and sisters from Europe standing in front of the Synod office. And we had a small symposium on the right of religious to vote, right, in the Synod, because in the Amazonia Synod it wasn't possible yet. And that was a good gathering. But we came to Rome and the Synod office didn't reply to our letter, did not reply to our request to meet them, didn't open the door when we were standing in front of the doors. And see, in only two years after that, the Synod, the doors of the Synod office were open for everybody. And we were able to go there to discuss our issues to bring. And this is a symbol for me. Let's open really more doors for the women in the Catholic Church. I didn't realize. So you were one of a part of the group in 2019 calling for votes for Catholic yes. women. Yes. And now you're, you've been a full voting member of this. That's an incredible thing. Yes. For me, it's still, I'm so thankful that the Synod office has changed its approach. It's really open for everybody. And you can bring your concerns there, your questions. You can ask for a meeting. It's an open office in the Vatican, which is very important for us. Because for us, looking from Europe, the European perspective or Swiss perspective, Vatican is like closed doors. You have no, no chance to, to go there, as a, especially not as a woman, maybe as a bishop. But uh, yeah, this is an incredible thing. For, for a Catholic church that is used to thinking and operating and decades and centuries to have this change in such a quick amount of time is quite remarkable. We've talked about your consistent involvement in the Synod, and one of the things that I've appreciated following your involvement is that you've often been willing to share your experience with the press at every stage of the journey. And then we arrived here in Rome at the start of this month for the Synod, and we have these sort of strange communication rules that, in a sense, paralyze the participants in the room from not knowing how to navigate their relationship with the press. What was that experience like for you when you heard about these regulations? And do you think they've been helpful to the discussion inside the room? Do you think more openness should be introduced at future synods? What would you recommend? Well, at first, of course, I wasn't happy because I feel also um, that we are 
responsible to give something back also to, to our communities, those who have uh, participated in the consultation. So I had a hard time at the beginning to understand what I can say and what I cannot say. It's quite difficult. On the other hand, I also felt in a way protected because I think the discussions were different without the press in the room. So, but for now, I see we could also change. And I think uh, it's good to change this for next year because there's a lot of trust also in the group of the Synod now. And I think we are at a point where we really respect each other's position also. We respect that there is a diversity of opinions. So I would be optimistic that we can also open to the media, but I'm not sure what the Synod office and the Vatican uh, uh, is uh, thinking of this. Do you have any clarity? The regulations as they're written say that you cannot talk about the discussions in the room even after the Synod is over. Have they offered any clarity in terms of how that might look in, in the next year? Or? No, this still, I think we will discuss it still this week. We're moving now from the Rome Assembly to a year-long pause before the next assembly in October 2024. Father Timothy Radcliffe warned that we shouldn't think about the Synod as a, a party political way of thinking or asking whose side are you on when it comes to specific issues. What do you hope takes place in this year between this Synod and the next Synod? I hope that our feedbacks will be taken seriously, but I'm confident, actually, because the Synod office and its commissions are really, let's say, going forward. I hope that we can have more exchange in the universal church, because that was one of my experiences. We have to listen to experiences of others. It needed a lot of time to explain sometimes, what do we really understand under permanent, we men as permanent deacons, for example. That looks different in Switzerland than in the United States or in other countries. So there, there is a need for this exchange in the church between Asia, Latin America, Africa, Europe, to understand each other much better. When you go back home to Switzerland in this year, what will be the main takeaway for you? What will, when someone asks you what the Synod was like, how will you respond? For me, it's, it's still an inspiring experience. Very strong with so many people really committed to make our church more participatory in a way, in its mission more credible because we will, I think, we will, we will make the hierarchical church a bit more like approachable for everybody. We can participate better, I'm sure, in the future at all different levels. But we also still have a lot to do at the, at the local levels in our dioceses and local churches. Well, this seems like a good place to wrap it up. We know that you have meetings to get to and we're coming to the end of the Synod. There's a lot to do. But Dr. Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. We really appreciate you being with us and with our listeners. Thanks to you. You contribute a lot also to the global exchange, right? In our church, the media is important. So I'm thankful thank that you. I had the chance to talk to you. Thank you.
We're so grateful that we had the chance to be joined today by both Father Orobitor and Dr. Yepesen. Thank you to them both. Chris, as we close out this four weeks in Rome, are there any big observations you want to make about this Synod Assembly? Josh, when I think back on this month, which I have to say is a bit of a blur, I do recall the eve of the Synod, the end of September, there being a real buzz and a sense of excitement in the air. Because, you know, for two years, Catholics around the world had been invited into this process. They'd participated in, in local listening sessions. They'd followed the continental gatherings. And there was just constant building, building, building up until this moment here when the, the Synod officially began at the beginning of October. And I think for some Catholics, at the very start of the Synod on October 4th, there was a bit of a gut punch when they realized that members of the Synod wouldn't be able to really talk about their experience or what was being discussed in the room. And having been invited into the process for so long, they were eager to know what was happening behind closed doors. Uh, and so I think you, you sensed already some frustration among Catholics about the, the guidelines in which the Synod took place. Uh, and, and, and even though guest delegates inside the Synod Hall attested to the fact that the communication guidelines provided a sense of freedom for them to speak with one another and a, a security, really, that, that their confidential discussions wouldn't be shared. It changed the dynamics for those outside of the room. And now we have document that I think many Catholics that had so invested in the synod process will be receiving with, I, I think we've, we've sensed it already, a, a bit of, of disappointment that I, I wonder if there will be a certain amount of synod fatigue that kicks in. Father Timothy Radcliffe talked about the fact that in the, between now and the next synod session in October 2024, it's the job of the synod to go back and, and tell people the, what has happened here in Rome this month. I'm curious if there will be ears to hear it and how that sort of initial excitement and energy might be sustained throughout this year leading up to the next synod so that the hard work of millions of Catholics around the world can still continue. Yeah, I think those are some very good points. And, and as, I, as I'm thinking about what happens next, I'm wondering a bit about the plan for the next 11 months between now and the next Synod Assembly in October 2024. It feels like there's a bit of a haziness over what this is going to look like, what these month, how these months might develop. Those regulations about whether or not the Synod members can speak about interventions in the hall are technically, I think, still in place, although it's not really been discussed. So when Synod members go home, apparently they can speak generally about the process, but they can't reveal what was said in the hall, even without giving people's names or trying to protect persons' identities. I don't know how that's going to hold up. I don't know how you can explain the process without at least giving a sense of what was said or some of the testimonies that were brought forward. Some of the testimonies in the hall that we heard about and that Father Radcliffe referred to were apparently extraordinarily moving. And it, and it seems a shame that the people in the hall who heard those can't share those with others and help them understand that this process. And it's also unclear to me what are local dioceses, what are national bishops' conferences meant to be doing in this time. We haven't really seen suggestions yet from the Synod office. I think some of that might develop. The U.S. bishops are going to be meeting for their annual fall assembly in November, I think the second week of November. I'm very curious to see what the bishops propose, especially what the delegation who is here in Rome says to the whole conference about what the discussions were like. And I think now it's an interim time where we might see people trying to make moves, trying to 
prepare for the next synod and make sure their issue is heard or make sure their issue is brought forward, or on the contrary, try to make sure an issue like the ordination of women to the diaconate doesn't happen or to organize against some of the possibilities that are on the table. I think it's a really fascinating time, but also quite unclear how it's going to develop from here. Yeah, if the goal of the synod is to become a more listening and participatory church, if you want to listen, obviously the synod process has provided a format for people to share their stories, to share their hopes and their concerns and their fears, but they also want to hear of the stories and the experiences of those that were inside the room, and it's unclear the path that can be taken to actually make that happen. So, yeah, stay tuned. That seems like a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us each week for updates about Pope Francis's summit on the future of the church. We're going to take a break now to sleep for a few days after the end of the synod, so we probably won't be in your feed next week. But stay tuned, we'll be in your feed before too long, and we really appreciate you being with us on this journey here in Rome during the synod. Thanks again for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. You can find our show notes with links relevant to today's discussion at ncronline.org. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. It really helps. You can send any questions you might want answered in a future episode to our email. That is thevaticanbriefing at gmail.com. Until next time, you've been briefed. Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grasso is the executive producer. Joshua McElwee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media, and music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out more great reporting from the National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org. <laughs>